Aloha, y'all. You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. Uh, Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to remind everyone, check out the new website. It's www.thesustainableangler.com. We've got some new stickers up. One dollar will be donated to the Sustainability Institute, uh, which is a nonprofit here in Charleston doing amazing work. Um, So just wanted to mention that. And now we'll shift gears and talk about today's episode, which I'm really stoked about. Um, Bone fishing is probably one of my favorite things to do. And it just so happens that bonefish live in the most beautiful places. So uh, really glad that I had the opportunity to sit down with Justin Lewis, who is a marine biologist and the Bahamas Initiative Manager for Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Um, We really take a deep dive into bonefish, everything from spawning habits, how to properly handle bonefish once you've caught one, environmental threats to bonefish, such as habitat degradation, but also some really inspiring habitat restoration initiatives like replanting mangroves. And finally, Justin's. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy whose mission is to measure and improve your sustainability performance, reduce your overall greenhouse gas emissions, help you tell a compelling story to customers through transparent reporting. Merger Strategies is also a proud 1% for the Planet member, a Fly Fishing Climate Alliance member. And to learn more about our services, please visit www.emergerstrategies.com. Hey, everybody. Um, yeah, my name is Justin Lewis. Um, I'm the Bahamas Initiative Manager for Bowfish and Tarpon Trust. Um, you're going to correct, correct Rick on my background. Uh, I am a marine biologist um, uh, by trade. Uh, so I went away to St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia and got my undergrad in aquatic resources and then went away to England to get my master's of science in marine environmental management. Wow. I didn't know that. That is quite impressive. <laughs> Um, so, um, with your marine biology and Bahamas initiative, how have you married those two together and in, in, in your current role? Oh, so it's perfect. So I grew up fishing my whole life and I also wanted to be a scientist, a marine, marine biologist my whole life. So having the opportunity to work for BTT was perfect to marry those two, the fishing side and, and the marine biology side together because how I was trained through school and how, how I've always approached fisheries in general is that it has to be has to be holistic you can't just be focused on biology or just focused on the social science side or focus on the fishing side you need to bring all that together economics the business all of it needs to be needs to be taken into consideration in order to be effective yeah totally and and the um with the bonefish tarpon trust for for anyone out there who just might not having have never heard of BTT for some reason, but um, what 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 exactly are are, are y'all trying to accomplish at, at BTT? Yeah, so BTT, um, I think we're we're twenty six or twenty seven years old. Please don't quote me on that. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, 
But yeah, so we are a nonprofit science-based conservation organization focused on the conservation of bonefish, uh, tarpon, permit, and their habitats. And so we we started in, in Florida Keys and fl Florida in general. Uh, still do obviously do a lot of work in Florida. We expanded to the Bahamas, um, and then we also do work in a lot of work in Belize and Mexico and Cuba. Yeah, so I, I have I've been a supporter of, of Bonefish Tarpon Trust um, for a long time, and I've always loved um, everything that that y'all are doing because I love the you know obviously you got to protect the habitat, and, and perhaps you can expand on that, but um, also really focusing like like I feel like the rest of the world would not have known about all these different spawning migrations and just. Or, or at least it wouldn't have been as amplified if Bonefish Tarpon Trust didn't exist. Um, and, or at least it was news to me. Like, I, you know, when I was first getting into to flats fishing, like I had no idea that tarpon migrated from, you know, <laughs> Belize or Mexico up to North Carolina. Like that just, you know, I, I, I thought people randomly caught tarpon and, and I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. I thought people, I thought that was like a random occurrence. Um, and so I got educated through Bonefish Tarpon Trust on 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 things like that that I think is just really um, really cool. Um, so I was I was going to ask if um, in terms of what BTT does and with your background, what are what are you what are you specifically working on in the Bahamas? So everything in the Bahamas, <laughs> I have to do everything. Um, but the main the main projects and focuses we have right now is uh, uh, spawning site identification. So we travel around all the islands, try to identify as many what we call pre-spawning aggregation sites um, for bonefish. And then it's basically a staging area for bonefish before they head offshore to spawn. Um, what else? Um, we have the mangrove restoration project going on in the wake of Hurricane Dorian. Um, that's going really well, and we feel that that's focused in in Grand Bahama and Abaco right now. Um, education side, um, do a lot of work with anglers and guides, and then also we've expanded to doing work in the schools as well. So with anglers and guides, is a big focus on best selling practices um, because even though our fishery is is catch and release fishery, and you release a fish doesn't necessarily mean it survives. It's all about how you handle that fish. And that starts from even before you even get in the boat. Um, so I can spend on that more later if you want me to. Um, and then with this, with the, with the schools, we take, we have, we have so much different research projects. I can, I can go on for days, but like basically, so <laughs> what we've done is taken all our research, made it digestible. And we've actually developed working with Bahamas National Trust, a flats, a flats ecology curriculum that teachers are trying to teach in the, in the schools. And we hope to get it like fully implemented in the public and private school system soon. No way. That's awesome. Because, right, because, I mean, it's like if, if you have to <clears throat> first know, you are, I guess you have to get an education on it. And if you're educating kids about the future of their fishery, right, it's theirs. It's in their backyard. Um then you're gonna, I guess, get the next generation of conservation leaders who wanna who wanna protect that resource. That's, that's exactly that's the it. Idea. Yeah, that's exactly it. They don't necessarily have to be leaders in conservation like myself. It would be great to get. We need more, <laughs> um, but more focused on these kids being more conservation minded moving forward. Um, 
Yeah. And so like, it's, I thought it was, I thought it was really important. That's why when I came on the VGT, I really pushed hard to do more work with, with students because growing up in the Bahamas and in the school system here, we weren't taught about bonefish. We weren't taught about the flats. Like we were taught about it, stuff separately, like learning about mangroves, learning about seagrasses, but they never, it was never taught that it's all interconnected because people didn't really know. Yeah. But now we, now we know. And so that's why we're trying to get that in there. Like how interconnected these habitats are because the flats is not just, it's not just a sand flat, it's not just a grass flat. There's like, I think there's like at least eight different habitat types that make up the habitat mosaic of the flats environment. Really? Um, yeah. What are, what are, so a, a couple of things that you just said that, that have got me curious. One, where in the Bahamas did you grow up? Cause the Bahamas is pretty massive. I feel, I don't know the exact yeah, square mile, but I mean, it's huge. Yeah. Um, so I, so, sorry, go ahead. No, I say I grew up in Freeport, Grand Bahama. Okay, cool. So that's the most, most Northern Island in the Bahamas. Okay. And where, where, where are you now? Where are you based in your... I'm in Freeport. I'm based in okay. Freeport. Yeah. Okay, cool. <clears throat> nice. So, so based in the Bahamas, grew up in the Bahamas, um, and you mentioned spawning about bonefish. So this is... So I I love bonefishing. I've, I've had the opportunity to uh, fish a couple of times in the Bahamas, um, one at Abaco Lodge before Dorian and um, another at, um, uh, what's the name of that? Staniel Key, um, which I think is Eleuthera. Like I'm, Exuma. I'm not, Exuma. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I've had a couple of, of opportunities to fish in the Bahamas for bonefish. It's spectacular. Um, I have come to the conclusion that bonefish live in the most beautiful places, so, um, without a doubt, I've, I've also had an opportunity to, to, to bonefish in French Polynesia and 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 Belize, and seems there's a direct connection between uh, beautiful clear water and bonefish. Um, so I'm envious of, uh, of of you. But what what can you tell me um, about spawning patterns or habits of, of bonefish? Where where are y'all finding through your research? Yeah, so we started doing spawning bonefish research in the Bahamas back in 2008, um, and that was, we were focused on just dart tagging, and dart tagging has been a big part of our project, of this project, and then also is a great way to get anglers and then kids involved as well. So basically, you just take, you're familiar with what a dart tag is, just, it's just your typical little plastic spaghetti tag, and it has a specific code on it. So from the recapture data that the anglers or the guides were giving back to us, we were able to kind of basically figure out, okay, where, where these bonefish are going, because like we, we would, we had bonefish that were recaptured 70 miles away from where they were originally tagged. Wow. And so what else, but more importantly, what this, um, the, the dart tag data in particular showed us is that bonefish have really small home ranges. So we, we determined that a bonefish home range is less than a square mile in size. So super small, they're home bodies. And I can, I can say myself, cause I've tagged thousands of fish. There are fish I've tagged just by myself when I'm out fishing. Um, and I've caught them like a few months later or a year and a half later. And they were in the exact same spot doing the exact same thing. No way. See that, that that's yeah. wild to me. That's I, I, I just, I didn't know, but that that's, that's great. So, I mean, they're, 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 they're not leaving home. 
They're, they're, yeah. they're okay. So where are they? Do, I guess like, do they, I think I've read that they like deep water to spawn and then they come back to the flats or how, how does that work? Yeah. So spawning season runs from October through April and from the dart tag data, uh, along with acoustic telemetry, um, we found that bonefish will leave their home ranges in order to go to spawn during the fuller new moon between October through April. And so they go to these pre-spawn aggregation sites, which are, which are the same spots they go to every year. Um, and they're characterized by a semi-enclosed bay um, that's deeper in water based anywhere from six to 20, 20 feet that has easy access to the flats, but also easy access to the, to the continental drop-off. Okay. So during the day, they'll ball up. There'll be anywhere from 500 to 10,000 fish in, in, a, in a ball. It's like literally just a bait ball of bonefish. Just oh, swimming around. Yeah, just, and, awesome. they're, and they're just, they are just chilling. They are just waiting to, to head offshore. So, but as the sun sets, they become more active and you'll see ventral nudging, basically uh, they're rubbing, basically bump. We think it's the males bumping the females' bellies, just trying to stimulate them or vice versa. Who knows? But we don't know. Um, but then they're also, be, they'll be porpoising. They'll be jumping out of the water and gulping air. And we believe that's them mm-hmm. filling their air bladder, preparing themselves to go up short off to deep water. And so we've tracked them at, as that sunset at night going off the drop off. They're in thousands of feet of water. We've, we've tracked them diving down to 400 feet of water. What? And then when the, they'll be down there, it's super cool seeing it on the sonar. Um, but they'll make these mat, these very fast vertical movements, like another 200 feet up. And we believe that's when spawning occurs and it's called broadcast spawning. So females will shoot up out of the school and males will be right behind them. And so as that air bladder expands, it helps them because of that massive pressure change. It helps them push out the eggs and the sperm. And then fertilization occurs immediately. And then the eggs just float off with the currents. That is freaking awesome. That is so cool. And I said, all I knew was deep water. I didn't realize that they were, and they were gulping air, which is also fascinating to me. Um, Wow. That's incredible. So that, so once they spawn, do they just come back that day or they hang out there for a while or. So yeah, they'll, they'll be out there throughout the night and they'll come back in the morning and some fish will end up going back to their home ranges. Others will go back out. We back there was what there was three fish that I tagged at the same time and they did the exact same movements three, three nights in a row. Wow. Like um, to the, to the minute to, <laughs> it was very really? cool to see. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's wild. That's awesome. Um, so with the with so having having sort of kind of kind of tying those two things together. So you've grown up in the Bahamas, went away for school, marine biologist. I don't know. I guess beforehand it was probably observational, but now you're putting science behind the research that you're doing. Have you? Is there data, or have you observed? noticeable changes in, in bonefish populations in the Bahamas? So I'm only 32. So I, I personally haven't seen any significant shift in the population, at least that I'm used to fishing here in Grand Bahama. Yeah. Um, now the other Good. older guides have seen some shifts, but nothing, nothing like what's happened in Florida. 
And that's what my job, my job is preventative medicine, trying to make sure that I hate to use Florida as an example, but for that not to happen. So that's why we're, we're doing all these research projects because it's all, it's not really focused on the fish. It's focusing how they're utilizing the habitat and what habitats they are utilizing okay. because we need to get those habitats protected. Cause if you don't have the habitats, you're not going to have the fish. So we take all this data and we present it to, we work with our partners and we present it to the government in, in hopes that these areas will be protected in some way, shape or form so that unsustainable development doesn't come in and ruin these areas because the greatest threat to bonefish in the Bahamas is habitat loss and degradation. So like, for example, I was just talking about the pre-spawning aggregation sites. Those are perfect spots. Those are actually, those are spots that uh, marina developments, important developments want to come in uh -huh. because they want that easy access to the shallower, but also easy access to the drop-off. And that's, yeah. and it's protected to an extent. That makes sense. So, so, Okay, so yeah, right, because you can you're going to be able to get in cruise ships or whatever else you want in close close to shore, um, not have to travel as far, and that's where they're they're aggregating. What what are some of the other, um, what 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 I guess maybe what's a what what is a bonefish looking for in habitat, or what what are the types of habitats aside from from those locations that you're you're protecting? So for home range habitats, so the flats itself, um, it's like I said earlier, it's made up of habitat mosaic. So you can have a mixture of seagrass, sand, um, algal plains, um, blue holes will be mixed in there, channels, mangroves, of course, um, and some patch trees. And it either can be dominated by one of those or a couple of those, or it can be all of them mixed in together. So actually the more complex the habitat, the better. So that's what bonefish are looking for is for that is for more complex habitat that's productive and provides not only a lot of food for them, but also will also provide shelter for them. Okay, cool. And so, so, so habitat degradation and loss is, is the number one threat to bonefish in, in the Bahamas with, with the work that you're doing. What are, or how do y'all go about protecting those areas? I guess, like, how does that process work? So basically we'll, we, we will put all our research together and we'll put it in a package and present it to government. Usually we'll be doing this along with a bunch of other, other partners and NGOs that are trying to get other areas protected as well. And a lot of times these areas will overlap. Um, and in the hopes that the, and we'll, we'll map it, map these areas out as well. And then we'll present it to government and say, in the hopes that they will designate those areas as protected areas. And that does not mean that they are no-take areas. They are just protected areas from, on, at this point in time, unsustainable development. Okay. Yeah, cool. so in 2015, we got five, five protected areas put in place and a park expansion, which protected home range habitat, but then also uh, spawning migration routes and three, yes, and three pre-spawning aggregation sites. Wow. Awesome. Uh, and just and just last year, I think it was, we got 25 more additional areas uh, protected for bonefish around the Bahamas because of the work us and our partners have been doing. That's fantastic. Kudos to y'all. I mean, that is that 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 is real progress. I mean, that is that because otherwise, if left on, you know, if, if there aren't people like you and organizations like Bonefish Tarpon Trust and the partners y'all work with it just goes straight to, like you said, it goes straight to unsustainable development because it's like, hey, this is a good location for 
tourism and this can bring in money through that. And so I guess the, the and I don't know this, so this is a question, but I'm just kind of like talking out loud a little bit is that, so if there's an area that's not protected and y'all go to pitch your case with your research, I would also guess that it's like, hey, look, and, and maybe this is what you were alluding to earlier when you're talking about marrying like the business and the economic side of it, of going to say, hey, look, here's our scientific research and here's how much people who want to bone fish, you know, can bring to the Bahamian um, economy that are going to come here through tourism dollars instead of making this just like another blown up tourist spot with a, with, you know. And all that comes along with that. Is that does that make sense or or yeah, no, that's exactly it. So like we don't just do biological research on the bonefish and habitats. So we do also economic research. So back in 2010, we did an economic study um of the of the flats fishery in the Bahamas, and we found that, and this is during the height of the recession now, and we found that it brought in 141 million dollars annually. Wow. And that's mostly impacting um small. Um, out island communities like in Andros and Crooked Island and whatnot. And then we decided to redo that study in 2018. And we found that it increased significantly to now $169 million annually. Okay. And again, still impacting primarily these small island communities. So like, for example, Andros, 80% of their tourism income comes from flats fishing. So a flat is... If flats fishing vanished, that'd be significant. That most most of their their GDP would be almost non-existent. And then people would probably have to leave, right? Because they can't they can't eat yeah, out, have of, to eat look, out look. a living. Yeah. And then yeah. they've got they're left with, or I guess that 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 gets even open up to more of the type of unsustainable development that you're talking about, right? If, yes. if there's no one living there. Correct. And then how what we also do is not just us presenting this this data to the government. We have we work with the guides all over the Bahamas and include them with our research. And I'm always taught, I'm always interacting with them no matter where I go. And they become advocates for us because that's who the, gov the government, that's who the government will listen to. Yeah. And then all these, all the guides are aware of what's going on. It's not like we came in and just did our thing and left. No, we are including them in, in the whole, in the whole process. That's awesome. Love that. Um, what other, so I'm, I'm sort of uh, wrapped up in the, the, the climate mitigation world with my business and, and what I do um, is there, are y'all able to, connect any dots to the uh, the impact of climate change on bonefish? Are they more sensitive to temperature change or anything like that, that that we see with other species? As an angler, I'm always curious, like, you know, it, it, it's more obvious with trout, right? Because you're like, all right, warmer stream temperatures, there are cold water species, that's not good. But is there, is climate change impacting bonefish in any way that y'all are able to tell so far with like ocean acidification or sea level rise or anything like that? Um, so we haven't direct, we've just started looking into what climate change, how climate change will affect, how affect bonefish. I have other colleagues who have done that work and they found that if we keep going on the trend that we are with climate change, it could absolutely impact um, bonefish because bonefish are very temp temperature sensitive fish compared to a lot of other flat species. 
And especially in the summertime on the flats, that heats up like crazy. I've been on flats where it's, it feels like a hot tub and there are no fish on the flats. So those fish are then escaping to deeper water. And then if we have an issue with climate change that becomes worse and worse, especially throughout the warmer parts of the year, these fish might not be able to access the areas that they want to forage because it's too hot for them to get up there. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And I mean, we were in, in Charleston, I, don't, I have not found any studies that show how, how climate change is, is impacting redfish or anything, but I do know that one way that it is, is, I mean, we, we see sea level rise here, like sunny day flooding here. And what happens that's it's an unintended uh, effect of that but whenever we have flooding and because we're developed so much you know we get all that runoff and everything else that you're pulling back into the to, to the marshes and the creeks from oil and pesticide and, and and everything else aside from when it just rains back into the marsh and you know intuitively you know that's not good for 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 the fish I mean that can't be healthy for them to to have to, to to live in in a polluted environment like that, but yeah, um, I'm always curious to 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 hear how it affects different species specifically, or how, or how we may think that it will anyway. Yeah, so for us, like yeah, you guys have those problems, but for us, it's more storms. So climate, the the science has shown that there's not necessarily more hurricanes going on, but there's going to be more powerful hurricanes going on, like how we had just had Dorian and we just had Irma, like that major storms back to back. Um, So with Dorian um, and Grand Bahama, between Grand Bahama and Abaco, we lost 42,000 acres of mangroves. Whoa. And that's why we're doing the mangrove restoration project. But if that continues to occur, especially at that scale, there's a lot of hab- important habitats going to be lost. So, but right now, the mangrove habitat, is tech, even though the trees are dead, the habitat is still intact. So that's why we're trying to get ahead, ahead of the curve uh, before any erosion occurs and whatnot. And we just hope that another big storm doesn't happen. And then also it's putting our islands at risk because we're so low, especially like my island, Grand Bahama, like during Dorian, 70% of the island was underwater. And that's never happened before. No way. Yeah. I mean, so so forty-two thousand acres. I mean, that's like it's it's you can't imagine it till you see it. It's insane. Yeah, like I can't wrap my head around it. Um yeah. and mangroves are a, a natural climate solution. Um I don't know how I, I think the the stuff that I've read, it's just that they, they sequester more than like tropical forests. Like, I mean, they're, they're just like, they, 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 they sequester a large volume of, of carbon. So there's this natural carbon or, or climate solution. And then you wipe out 42,000 acres with a storm that was more intense. It's like this vicious cycle. Um, that's a little bit scary when, 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 when it gets right down to it. Yeah. Um, so what are okay, so we we sort of talked about so we talked about habitat degradation, we talked about climate change. Are there any other specific threats to, to bonefish that y'all are that y'all are finding um through through your research? So 
to a small extent, it's more localized in some of the further out islands um, is uh, illegal netting. Okay. And that literally that comes down to enforcement. Yeah. There's not the, the, the rule, the laws are on the books that you're not allowed to net bonefish, you're not allowed to buy bonefish, you're not allowed to sell bonefish. You can catch them hook and line for your own personal consumption, but how some guys are doing it, and it's, it's not very common, thankfully, but the areas where it is, is happening, it is, it is starting to affect those fisheries. And it's just that the enforcement isn't being put in place and the, and the people and the police know who's doing it. They're being the, the guys, the guy, the bonefish guys report them all the time and nothing gets done. Unfortunately. Wow. Because they're because how it works is like oh that's my cousin or that's a family member of some sort so yeah. yeah interesting so what are you you mentioned this earlier but um I'll kind of kind of shift gears a, a little bit from threats to uh, some good practices and 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 some some good news around bonefish because I know y'all um, y'all are doing some amazing work in the Bahamas. Um, First up, what are some of the best handling practices for, for anglers that are coming down to the Bahamas? It's their first time catching a bonefish. How should they properly handle uh, fish to, to protect it? Yeah, so there's there's several ways, and it starts pretty good, but I also want to reiterate again, as I always do when I'm talking about best line practices, just because you release a fish does not mean it survives. So please listen carefully to these best handling practices. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so for so with bonefish, I always tell people it starts before you even get in the boat. Um, when you're when you're tying up your leader, I we recommend you don't use anything less than twelve. I personally use nothing less than fifteen because you want to be able to get that fish in as quickly as possible and get it released quickly as possible. Yeah. So don't you, you don't be afraid to put pressure on that fish. Yeah. I know people want to baby it and whatnot, but the quicker you get in that fish, uh, the better. And you're still going to get a great fight out of that, that fish. And you're less likely to pop it off. <laughs> <laughs> um, next thing is hooks. Um, all your hooks should be debarbed. Good. Just it just minimizes handling time. And I know people like, oh, I'm, I'm going to lose the fish. I was like, no, you're not going to lose the fish if you keep the pressure on. It's all about how much, whether you have the barb. Barbed or barbless hook, it's how much pressure, as long as you keep uh, tension on that fish, you're not, that hook should not pop out. So, but you would want to do barb. anyway with a barb or not, right? I mean, yeah. you know, it's not like you want your line to go slack when you're fighting the fish anyway. Yeah, correct. And all you have to do is just, just squeeze down the barb. Or another thing, if you don't feel comfortable squeezing down the whole, whole barb, I tell people to squeeze down the backhand so you still have that little bump, but it still pops right out yeah. um, when you go to release that fish. Um, when you're, of course, when you're fighting the fish, try to get that fish in quickly, but don't be afraid to put put pressure on that fish. Um, when it gets to the boat, leave that fish in the water. Um, best, honestly, best thing to do, release that fish in the water. Just grab the hook with either either your hand or even better, a dehooking device or a pair of pliers, pop that, pop it off, let that fish go. But I understand whether it's your first bonefish, biggest bonefish, whatever bonefish it is, you want to picture with that fish, um, as we as we all do. Um, but you don't. That doesn't mean that you take a picture with every single fish. Right. Right. Um, so the and the so social media kills more fish than anything else. So the way that you do this to minimize um, uh, handling time and their survival. Um, is when that leave that fish in the water, um, get your cameraman ready, 
for you as the angler holding the fish, make sure you're, you have clean, wet hands. Um, if you're wearing sun gloves, take the sun gloves off because that's abrasive uh, to the fish and it will take off that protective slime. Um, either lay off the side of the boat with the fish in the water or jump in the water with the fish. Do not stand up in the boat with the fish. <laughs> I can't yeah, reiterate yeah, right? that enough. Please do not stand in the boat with the fish or sit in the boat with the fish because it's more than likely that fish is going to fall off your hand and they don't know what gravity is. And it's the equivalent of us like falling off a one-story building on top of our heads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true. And, and if you've never held a bonefish, it is... A, a uniquely slimy fish. So, and and when you add the, if it's the middle of the day, the deck of the boat's probably hot. So it's like, hey, I just fell off a one-story building onto a frying pan, and <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it can't be good for the fish. Yeah. So once you're in the proper best value practice position for your photo, make sure your cameraman's ready. Pick that fish up out of the water, over the water, of course. Take that quick picture, put that fish back right straight back down. Yeah. If that fish is not dripping wet in that photo, that fish has been exposed to air for too long. And we found that air exposure for more than 15 seconds is detrimental to, those, to their survival post-release because they're, after that point in time, um, their gills can start to fuse together and that can wow. disrupt them breathing. And then you don't want them, want them drying out, period, anyway. Um, and then that fish, like once you take that photo, release that fish. The other thing is predators. If you are in an area where there's a bunch of sharks around, don't fish there. Yeah. Because all the research that we've done, the more predators there are, the more chances of, of predation is going to occur. So, um, and what happens most of the time, it doesn't happen when that fish is on the line. Predation generally occurs at like 10, 15 minutes after that fish has been released. So the quicker you get that fish released, a still has a bunch of energy to get away, the better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because there are there are there are areas from the research that we've done, like it could be 60 to sometimes a lot of times 90 to 100 percent uh predation rate if there are sharks around. That's yeah. crazy. So like gear, I mean, it's almost a guarantee. It's like, you're going to wear this fish out and put them back in the water. It can barely breathe and not have any energy and they're going to get Correct. eaten up. Correct. And you don't want, you know, cause you'll hear 10, 15 minutes later, a big explosion that those sharks will track those fish for a long time. <laughs> Nature, pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, couple, couple other things. Um, don't use a lip gripping device um, yeah. because 60% of the time it's going to damage the jaw and especially, yeah, just don't use it period. If you were to hold the fish vertically, like a lot of people do in other, other photos, like it's, you're going to dislodge, you're going to injure that fish's jaw by hundred percent of the time, which can inhibit them from feeding. So no lip gripping devices uh, is allowed. Um, what's another thing? Yeah. Make sure you're clean and wet hands. You have sunscreen on your hand. Just make sure you get that, get that off your hand. Cause that will, that will can cause sores on the bonefish. Um, obviously don't grab the bonefish by the gills, please. If you're going to, when you're holding the fish, best thing is to do one hand underneath the pectoral fins. That's the fins just behind the head, other hand underneath the tail. Do not grab the fish by its head or by, or, or underneath its gill plate. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, well, I wish I would have, um, I think, I think it would be helpful. The first time I caught a bonefish 
I didn't have, or I don't even know if these resources were available. It was just like, I'm pretty sure I was on a boat and I immediately picked it up for the Griffin grin, held it probably improperly and it fell and hit the deck. And um, I didn't know any better. So hopefully if you're listening to this, um, listen to Justin's tips because um, it can really, it can save fish's lives. So, um, you know, if it's the last thing you want to do if you're catching and releasing a fish is, is is to accidentally uh kill it you know that what it's just a, a waste um yeah. so and those, are, those are awesome we have a bunch of educational material on our website at bonefishtarpentrust.org we have a bunch of it like we have stuff written out about best selling practices we also have several videos about bonefish tarpon permit best selling practices so guys go go take a look at that and there's some there's some some good fishing videos in there too. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. Well, what, what, what else? I know that um, I've been seeing a lot about it, at least in the news or the media about, we talked about Dorian wiping out all these mangroves and y'all got this pretty huge restoration project going on. It looks like, uh, can you tell us a little bit more uh, about that? Yeah. So Obviously, a lot of people know about how devastating Dorian was to the northern Bahamas, displaced a lot of people, caused billions of dollars in damage, and especially impacted um, the small fishing communities like in East Grand Bahama and in Abaco. Um, and so we did some informal surveys right after the storm. Um, the, bone, the bonefish population seemed stable. Uh, there, I saw a bunch of permit as well. That was good to see. Underwater habitat was, was, was intact. There were some areas that got kind of washed away, but for the most part, it was intact and healthy. But it was obvious that the mangroves took the biggest, biggest hit. So we worked with, then we worked with the University of Alabama um, and did some, uh, some remote scenting and satellite surveys and on the ground, ground truthing. Sorry, <laughs> a little bit of allergies. Um, <laughs> and we found in Grand Bahama that down, we there was 73% of the mangroves were damaged slash destroyed, which is about 21,000 acres. Um, and then in Abaco, it was 40% of their mangroves were damaged, destroyed. That's 20,000 acres. Wow. So massive destruction. And what usually happens during a storm is you'll get patchiness of damage destruction, at, but with the areas adjacent that were basically unimpacted, that can then reseed that damaged area. But because of how unique Dorian was, how because it sat for so long, it totally it totally defoliated. It beat up it beat up the mangrove trees um, because they're our first line of coastal defense. They actually can minimize storm surge up to sixty percent, so they took the brunt of the storm. Wow. Um, and yeah, so with them being beat up by the winds and the waves and being mostly defoliated, that and that just that just killed them. It was way too much for them to handle because usually a storm would just pass through, whereas this storm sat for forty eight to fifty hours. God, that's insane. Yeah. And so after doing the after doing that formal survey and talking to some of our partners, we were just like, we, we need to do something. We need to we need to help kickstart this recovery because majority, especially in Grand Bahama, majority of the of the seed trees were were gone. There's one small remnant population in West End. And but the rest of Grand Bahama, there are no adult trees left. So that by seed tree, you mean a, a adult mangrove that's going to adult mangrove? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so right now we are partnering with uh, Bahamas National Trust. Um, they are in charge of managing all the, all the national parks, but we've been partnering with them for a long time. Friends of the Environment, they're a grassroots NGO based in Abaco. And then Mang, they're a clothing retail company, but their motto is buy one, plant one. So they do a lot of mango restoration work in Florida. That's awesome. So right now the project's been going really well. Um, just two weekends ago, yeah, two weekends ago, we hit, we surpassed 20,000 plants. Oh, that's awesome. And that's, that's basically one, one, that's with COVID and everything, one year, one of the project. So our goal over the next another three, four years is to hit a hundred thousand, at least a hundred thousand. Hopefully we'll hit more than that. Wow. Yeah. And so we're focusing planting in areas where there were adult trees that produce propagules. Propagules are the seeds um, because those areas have enough nutrients to allow these trees to grow to adult size. And we're also focusing around around creeks because those areas are also great for bringing in nutrients. But also when this, these trees get to adult size and start producing seeds is great for dispersal to areas that we can't access. Yeah, that's that's super cool. I, I'm I always try. I, I love doing this podcast. I always learn so much. It's probably my favorite thing to, to uh, about this. But I also try and relate it to like what I know, obviously. So, like you know, you mentioned storm surge. So, like in Charleston, we have vast salt marshes, kind of similar protection, right, to protect us from storm surge, and also like mangroves um, are. Uh, a nursery for all of our fish. Um, for us, it's yep. it's it's redfish. You know, is a primary target here. But there's speckled trout, there's flounder, there's, there's all sorts of fish here, and they wouldn't exist without that habitat. So this habitat restoration that 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 y'all are doing is critically important for for the future of the fishery. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Um. Awesome. What um. Okay, is there any other, um, we've been talking mostly about bonefish. You mentioned permit, mentioned some tarpon. Is there anything um, we want to cover there? Otherwise, I have, we're going to shift gears and talk a little fishing. <laughs> yeah, so my, my focus in the Bahamas is bonefish. All right, so now we are going to shift gears because although we have been talking about uh, bonefish, which is all fascinating uh, to me just because I've, I love to, to fish for bonefish, so that was all great. Um, talked about some environmental threats, some of the amazing work that Bonefish Tarpon Trust and, and your partners are doing. Um, but of course, you're out there in the Bahamas researching, um, aka fishing. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, but... Uh, <laughs> I wish I was fishing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about this. So what are, um, do you primarily spin fish, fly fish? What's your favorite way to, to, to go bone fish? Uh, for bone fish, I fly fish, but I, yeah. I spin fish all the time, but it's mostly, yeah. it's fly fishing primarily. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that being said, if you had, um, you're on a desert island and you've got one bone fish fly, uh, what, what, what's, what's it going to be? Spawning shrimp. Spawning shrimp. Of some, of some sort, a spawning shrimp. Okay. All right. This is this is coming from the bonefish expert, uh, Justin Lewis. You heard it, spawning shrimp. Um, I'm going to have to 
to get a handful of those. Can't leave home without those then. Um, what are what are some of, I mean, I'm sure like literally during your research because you're tagging them and everything else, but I mean, how, what are like, what's maybe the biggest bonefish you've come across either through, I don't know how y'all, you if you catch all of them with a, with a, with a rod or if y'all net some of them to do your research just up, but what is some of the bigger bonefish that you've seen in, in, in your work or that you've caught? Um, so how, when we're, when we're tagging, we usually use seine nets. So it's really efficient, effective and efficient way to catch them. So we'll usually get a lot of big bonefish doing that. The biggest I've seen was probably oof, just under 30 inches, but I know before Ooh. I came on, before I came, that's to the fork now. We always, cause when we measure, we only do to a fork. Um, but before, like right before I came on board, I know they got a fish that was 35 to the fork. Oh my God. But I've seen, I've seen much bigger than that. I've seen 12, 15, probably 50. I've seen 15 plus pound bonefish for sure. Especially in like when we go to the pre, this pre-spine aggregations and you're swimming around with them, you see the size of these fish. That is crazy. Yeah. Um, all right. And so what, what, what is, um, what makes the Bahamas, I guess, so unique for bonefish? Why, why are they, why do they, I don't know what was the right way I'm trying to ask this. Why are they doing so well or have they done so well in the Bahamas? Um, habitat. Yeah. That's what it comes down to is the habitat. Bahamas is we I it's 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 undeveloped I wouldn't say I guess I don't want to say undeveloped like a lot of the areas the habitats are are not haven't been impacted by humans yeah. um for example the west side of Andros which is probably the, is the largest bonefish habitat in the Bahamas probably one of the largest in the world is untouched there was no one out there. There was no one doing anything out there. Those bonefish are just left alone and nature's left alone to do its thing as it should yeah. be. Yeah. So the fact that the habit, the habitat is intact. Um, we, we don't have any water issues in the Bahamas. Like we might have some localized like pollution, but like nothing on the scale of like Florida or like central America. Yeah. So we have, we have, we have the perfect mix of everything for bonefish. That's why we have such a healthy, stable population. And we need to keep it that way. Yeah, yeah. The future of the fishery. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna say if you if you have a message uh, of of maybe hope or inspiration for everyone out there um, about the future of bonefish or what they can do to get involved or how they can support your work. Um, at, at BTT, anything along those lines. Um, if you if you wouldn't mind letting us know how we can how how we can help help the bonefish populations in, in the Bahamas. Easiest way, donate. <laughs> <laughs> That's the easiest way. Um, yeah, so you could donate through our website, bonefishtarpentrust.org, and whatever project, whether it's uh, you want to donate to the Bahamas, to stuff in Florida with tarpon or permit, um, Cuba, Belize, Mexico, um, you can, you can state that whenever you go to donate that I want to earmark it for, for these oh, specific cool. projects or for the mangrove, pro for the mangrove project. Exactly. And then on our website, 
We have a list of all the different projects that are going on so you can get an idea of what's going on. You can sign up for our newsletter so you get regular updates. Um, you can get our, you can get our, our bot, sorry, biannual journal, Bonefish Trapper Trust journal. Yeah. Which comes a lot. Yeah, yeah. Great journal, by the way. That, that, that alone, aside from supporting the work y'all are doing, is, is worth the, the, the price of uh, a donation or membership. Um, <laughs> look forward to getting that in the mail every time it comes in. Um, well, that's awesome. Well, um, well, Justin, I appreciate your time. I appreciate everything that you're doing and uh, to protect what you love. I mean, that's ultimately... You're, you're, you're living the dream. You're, you're uh, getting a fish, you're a marine biologist, you're protecting your home waters. Um, so I, I admire you and, and thank you so much for, for uh, what you're doing. Thank you, Rick, for having me on. Thanks for listening to The Sustainable Angler and special thanks to Justin Lewis and the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Uh, If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps the show out a lot. Thanks and have a good one.